this week asking Jesus why. We looked at last week the questions that Jesus asked. Well, this week we're looking at the questions that were asked of Jesus. And next week we're going to look at sometimes Jesus got angry. Those five different units, the one unit last week, we're looking at three units this week, and then the one unit next week make up a series of five units, and all five of those units in Mark center around Jesus coming in conflict with the religious leaders. And as we watch this conflict happen, we learn things about Jesus, and we also learn things about the human heart. A lot of times as we're reading the scriptures, we lose sight of the fact that the scriptures are literature. Now, they're inspired literature, but they're literature, and they have structure. They have uh, climax and resolution. There's themes and patterns in scripture, and so it helps us to understand here with Mark. Mark has arranged his gospel by the Holy Spirit here in such a way that he is bringing these conflicts with religious leaders all together together. They're not necessarily in chronological order, and it's not even all of them. He just selected five of them to teach us about Jesus and also to teach us about the human heart. Now, we've been doing a lot of whys recently, and we're looking at three today, and so I want to talk about which type of why. Which type of why? There is a type of why that Jesus asked, which is totally different than what the rest of us human beings can ask, and that was Jesus didn't need to know. He already knew, but through his why, he was confronting and instructing. Then there is the why that my children ask when they get to a certain age. I think most, of, I think all of them are past this age. Joel, Joel still asks some, um, James some, but when they get to like two or three everything's why, and then there's a follow-up why, and say, when am I going to end the why train? They, they're curious, and they want to know their minds, this, this whole new world's opening up to them, and we as adults, there's times when we have a curious why, do we ask somebody? Well, there's a third type of why, and that is the hostile why, where there is anger, there is disappointment, there is frustration pent up when you ask the person why. You don't really want to know why, or if you do want to know why, it's because you're very angry at them, but three different types of why, and the whys today that are asked of Jesus are those hostile whys, that people come to Jesus, these religious leaders, they're angry, they're disappointed, frustrated with him, and they're asking him why, why? So just to, you have it on your handout, but because we're covering a lot of material today, I want to make sure that the main divisions of our sermon today is, is, are clear. Why does Jesus associate with them? Why doesn't Jesus do that? And then why does Jesus do that? It would be very easy for us today to because there's so much material we're covering to get into too much detail, and it would take too long, and I think we would miss the big picture. So this morning, I'm attempting to err on the side of keeping a big picture and avoiding a lot of the detail. 
If I don't cover a detail that you have a question about, I'd be glad to talk with you about it. But I'm trying to keep things really big picture today. Jesus pushed the envelope and blew people's minds. Now, he did it in the perfect holy way that only he could do. But Jesus was a very controversial figure for both good and bad people and all in between. God himself, the word expressed, truth, complete, pure, lived here and expressed through Jesus on earth, through the perfect 100% God-man. And it was very hard for people to understand him. So he was constantly just more than people could comprehend and frustrating them, confusing them. And here is we, we get a good look at that as we see what the gospel writers are doing here when he conflicts with the religious leaders. The things that Jesus is causing controversy over here with the religious leaders in these five units are matters of tradition. Matters of tradition that have been passed down as conclusions based on the scriptures from generation to generation. So why does Jesus associate with them? This question of association goes deep within our human experience. We're never going to be able to step outside of this evaluating of association. It's a big part of who we are. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Remember, Capernaum was a... uh, had a tax station there on the way through. It was a major pass-through town. And so the uh, Roman government established a place to where there could be a tax for people passing through on their way. And Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here we have a very shocking call by Jesus to Levi. Levi was hated. I think those of you who have heard sermons or studied the scriptures of the years, you might know this conceptually, but I don't think any of us can understand this and how emotionally and how much Levi was hated. Levi was a tax farmer, and so he 
had the uh, um, duty for the Roman government to raise a certain amount of tax, and he had the ability, kind of like a franchise, to charge anything and above that what he wanted to charge. And often these folks were known for being dishonest and really abusing this tax farming position. Now, as we think of Bremen, it's hard to think of a parallel in our town of somebody that's just everybody hates. Maybe some of you have someone in mind. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't go there. But no, that's precisely why I want to go there. I think, think of the person you like the least in our town. And still, Levi was thought of as much, much worse. I don't think I'm exaggerating here. And maybe you have trouble thinking of someone you don't like. Well, think of the person you like the least in your whole entire life experience. And probably Levi was thought of as much worse in his local town. I can think of some people during my teen years when I was in Kentucky that I really disliked strongly. And I had some good reasons. I think I would have been upset and offended if I saw Jesus walk up to them and call one of them to be one of his disciples. That would have been very hard to swallow. We know from other portions of Scripture as well as church tradition that this Levi is called Matthew by another name. The same Matthew that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Here you take somebody who was hated and likely involved in dishonest money dealing. And when Jesus saw him and called him, we don't know what was going on in Levi's heart. But this illustrates the beauty and the miracle of God's sovereign grace and salvation. God can take the worst person that most people can think of, save them, and put them into service. And then use them greatly with great impact. In Matthew's case, writing by the Holy Spirit, the Gospel of Matthew. But as we struggle with this idea of association We have to reckon with the disgust and dislike and sometimes hatred we have in our hearts for others and recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ can transform those people too. In fact, we need to rework what's going on in our hearts with God's help so that we have a gospel perspective on those people. I think of the atmosphere and attitude towards the Muslim people right after 9-11 in our country. That would be an example. And there are thousands more examples on the history books. But what I want you to do is not 
they removed emotionally from this story. What happened with Levi was offensive and shocking. Next, we read of it does the grammar of the passage doesn't make it totally clear, but it seems like Jesus was at Levi's house and Levi invited his friends. It could also be that Jesus was at his house and invited, maybe Levi came over and invited a bunch of his friends. Either way, Jesus was with the likes of Levi and a bunch of other people that were hated and despised, and he was having a meal with them. And I'm trying to help you not be emotionally distanced from this. This was shocking. You can take someone who is supposed to be your savior, and yet he is spending time in fellowship, in communion, with somebody who you are disgusted at. Who has hurt you. Who has offended you. Who has taken advantage of you. If there were a tabloid newspaper in Capernaum, then pictures of this event would have been all over town. If there would have been social media, Jesus would have been posted and reposted with critical comments in every awful imaginable way. Jesus was blowing their minds but showing us through the gospel that he was giving the power of transformation and the power that takes us down. You think of the divide in our country right now? The gospel of Jesus Christ goes beyond that divide and goes deeper and connects to people where they are. Jesus would be able to have a conversation with the political party that you hate right now. With that rank opposing political party that gets you angry. Jesus would be talking to those people. One of the challenges... It's increased in our country. We've watched Christian communities more and more pull into themselves, pull out of the public schools. I'm not saying it's wrong to do something different. I'm just making a point that we have pulled more and more away from the sinners. And we have forgotten how to have a conversation with those who don't know Christ. Multiple of the pastors and commentaries that I read made made this point. We want Christian doctors, we want uh, Christian dentists, we want Christian this, Christian that, and we are insulating ourselves and pulling in. And Jesus was doing the opposite. and He was engaging these folks, spending time with those folks. He wasn't compromising. He wasn't giving up on the truth. 
but he was the perfect example of somebody who engaged folks and had messy relationships and messy conversations. You want to see folks saved. You want to see the power of the gospel transform lives. You've got to go out there and get among people. You've got to make a slot in your life to be among those people who are not like you. You may have to give up some other slot in your life that you really like really comfortable, that's entertaining or that brings you joy but with the passion and the truth of who Jesus Christ was you give up something in order that you can have a slot in your life to have those types of messy relationships and conversations this week I was substitute teaching, I heard some pretty nasty language and some pretty nasty conversations Some of them are very sexual in nature. Definitely not a convenient thing to be around that. But I lay this upon you maybe a little bit strong this morning to challenge you. Make sure you're having conversations with those who are totally different than you in God's strength. So why does Jesus associate with them? And next, why doesn't Jesus do that? Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests, while the bridegroom is with them, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. There were a few times when the Old Testament commanded the Jews to fast. Tradition over generations had greatly expanded upon that. The New Testament does not command the church to fast. There's nothing wrong with fasting. There's great value in taking time to focus on the Lord but we must keep it in perspective. There are some church traditions that have added regular fasting to their calendars. I'm not comfortable with that. I'm okay with fasting, but we've got to be very careful because it's easy to mistake God's instructions to us 
versus what church tradition requires. In fact, all church traditions struggle with this in one aspect or another. So here we have a failure to fast. A failure, Jesus and his disciples were not keeping the tradition that had been passed down from generation to generation. Not the commanded tradition of the Old Testament, but the tradition of the elders. At some point, religious leaders 10, 20, 30, 40, 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago, made a decision that this is how we're going to apply a biblical instruction. And they made a little expansion. And then 100 years later, a little more expansion. And it began to grow and grow and grow to where there was a large tradition that was passed down from the religious leaders that the people had to follow to be in good standing in their religious community. This was a very confusing thing for people. Here you have somebody who they've seen has the power to heal. They've seen that this person has the power to cast out demons and claims the connection of the ability to forgive sins and to give somebody the ability to walk who is paralyzed. And then this person is coming in conflict with their religious leaders and all that they've been teaching for generations. This was explosive. This was confusing. And this is a struggle of human nature. We tend to go one way or the other. We either detract from what the Bible says, which usually Bible centered churches struggle less with that. The other thing that we could do is we could add to what the Bible says. And those who have been more focused on what the Bible actually says tend to struggle on that end. They add their conclusions and their applications and they layer on top. And before you know it, the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that, just take it as that's what it means and that's how we do it. And the Bible doesn't even say that. And an aspect of my ministry is the pastor who tries to stay centered on the scriptures is to point out when tradition goes beyond the scripture. There has been more than one conversation I've had since I've come here. And somebody who's been here for a long time, they said, I've never heard that. Meaning, I say, the Bible doesn't actually say that. I've never heard that the Bible doesn't actually say that. Well, here's what the Bible does say, and here's where they get it from, but that's not what the Bible says. This does not make tradition wrong. Tradition is usually based upon an application of a specific scripture within a particular context at a particular time. And usually it's well-meaning and usually it's a good one. But times change. Contexts change. And then we have somebody's application that is no longer questioned, 
but yet is slightly different. And so is then scripture and is different than the context that it is originally applied in. We have a job when it comes to tradition to evaluate the tradition and to make fresh application of scripture for every generation. You say, well, where is this in the scripture that I'm just saying right now? This is precisely what's happening. Over time, they had gotten off center with their tradition, and yet that's what everybody was doing, was following the tradition. And Jesus came in, and he challenged that and showed them what the scripture actually said. Why is Jesus associated with them? Why doesn't Jesus do that? That was fasting. And next, and finally, why does Jesus do that? Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, this is a matter we struggle to appreciate today. We can read about this dispassionately. We're emotionally disconnected. The Sabbath, 200 years ago, was something that was attempted to be kept. The things we're passionate about today, recently the presidential election, racial equality after a year we had last year, there's things we're passionate about today, but keeping the Sabbath is not something that's on our minds right now. Sabbath, Saturday. Sabbath is not Sunday. There were Old Testament requirements for keeping the Sabbath, some. But like fasting, over the Old Testament time period, they began to add to it and add to it and add to it and add to it. Jesus and his disciples, when they picked the heads of grain out of the field, were breaking the man-made tradition, but not the scriptural requirements. Again, 200 years ago, keeping the Sabbath was applied to a Sunday. There would be certain expectations for businesses in town, and many were closed on Sunday, and that has slowly fallen away in our culture. I want to be careful here. We need to know exactly what the Bible says. There is no command for the church to keep the Sabbath. There is no command also to have church on Sunday. But there's also no reason for us to do it any other day, at least for most. 
Some folks in a country where there's a lot of oppression, they might meet on a different day besides Sunday. But the Sabbath principle is good. So I want to be careful. Taking a day of rest is good. How to apply that is up to each individual believer. It wasn't that way for an Old Testament believer. An Old Testament believer had specific commands from God. Israel had specific commands from God about how to keep the Sabbath. They just added to it in a great way. There is a Sabbath principle. God did rest in the seventh day after he created the earth in the first six days. We need to be very careful how we apply that and require that of other believers. There is a good Sabbath principle of rest. It's also a good giving principle in the scriptures. Scriptures are clear that we are to give. The Old Testament Israelites were required to give a 10%. That was not something that was required of the church. However, it's a good principle to apply by, live by, but it's not a requirement. So we need to be very careful how we apply Old Testament law to the church. This goes back to the idea of evaluating tradition. The many things that have been applied and required over the generations, but they weren't quite exactly on base. There are other times when they were on base for the particular context. There are certain things that were fringe for people to do in culture 100 years ago. And so Bible-believing churches said, I don't think Christians should go do that because all of society felt like that was on the fringe. But it wasn't necessarily a right or wrong thing. Then some of those things became mainstream and it wasn't a right or wrong thing. And so you're going to find that Bible-preaching churches have backed off on some of those things. Then there have been some churches that hung on to those requirements in their tradition for 30, 40, 50 years after it wasn't necessarily relevant. And you have a church who's holding on to tradition in an unhealthy way. Maybe I've just totally confused you. I hope not. The point is, is we need to be able to evaluate what the scriptures actually say and then evaluate the tradition and how we apply it to today. And some of that will change over time. There are timeless things that never change. A sin is a sin. Sexual immorality is always sexual immorality. Wrathful, vengeful anger is always sinful. We can go down the list of sins that the scriptures give us. But there are plenty of other areas where each generation and for each family and for each individual, we have to make a fresh application based on the scriptures. There are people who use that as license. And they do whatever they can to get away with it. They say, well, the scripture doesn't command me not to do that. That's a wrong heart, folks. The scriptures make, use phrases that make it clear that we are to use discernments as Christians. Where we get off base is when we try to require all Christians to fit into the way we discern things or the tradition that has been passed on to us without evaluating it in a proper way. So four points of application for us today. Consider the value of tradition. 
There is a lot of value. And there can be a lot of safety in that. Number two, consider how tradition can keep you from fresh application. Folks just take what's handed to them and they don't apply the scriptures for themselves. Number three, consider how tradition can be a matter of power. People can use tradition as a way to be a power broker in other people's lives. And that's unhealthy. Number four, make this a matter of prayer. Be active in praying about this and seeking to grow in how you live this out in your life. So take a few minutes and respond to the Lord.